This is the Future of Digital Art podcast, brought to you by Sakshi Art. This show is dedicated to empowering emerging artists by helping them better understand how they can use technology to expand their art offerings. In each episode, we'll interview successful NFT artists, collectors, and digital art influencers. They'll share insights on how the art world is changing, how they got involved in digital art, art NFTs, the creator economy, and actionable advice that you can use to grow your portfolio and win at the future of digital art. I'm your host, Capucin Jenkins, curator of digital art and NFTs at Sachi Art. Now let's dive right into the show we have planned for you today. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Digital Art podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Anne Spalter. Thanks for chatting with me today. Want to introduce yourself to our audience? I would love to, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm foremost an artist, but also an educator and a writer and a collector of digital artwork, and um, focusing in my artwork on kind of a post-Armageddon, spaceship, sci-fi, uh, modern landscape kind of artwork created with uh, digital means. Very cool. We're super excited to have you. So why don't you tell us a little more about your background and uh, the work that you do? Sure. My training is traditional. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design and studied painting and along the way became enamored of digital art. I didn't start out that way. In fact, as some people still sometimes do, I thought, oh, the computer has no role in, in art creation. It has to be made with the hand and the physical medium. But when I graduated from college and had a job in New York in banking, actually, oh, wow. I discovered that I could make art on my computer and that there were actually these amazing things that I could do that were just incredibly powerful that were not accessible with traditional media, changing color endlessly, undoing things endlessly. And I just realized the computer was a fantastic visual thinking tool, and I really wanted to integrate it into my artistic practice. That's incredible. Yeah, that was decades ago. <laughs> and then I've just been you know, working on that ever since, but going back and forth between traditional and analog and often trying to integrate those things together. Was art before, you know, going to RISD, was art ever a part of your upbringing, your childhood at all? Uh, my parents dragged me to a lot of art museums and mm -hmm. I fought it tooth and nail the whole time. So <laughs> I think everyone was surprised that this became my vocation. Mm -hmm. But you never know. You never know what influences are going to, you know, Right. And then finally influence you profoundly. Mm -hmm. Right. So you were a banker. <laughs> well, very briefly, very briefly. And I think everyone realized that that was not what I should be in, in the long run. So how long was it as a banker until you realized that, oh, I actually, this other path is probably where I should focus my energy and this is a little more interesting and suits me better? Yeah, it was more when I graduated, um, mm -hmm. you know, my parents who had, I was, you know, very fortunate to be sent to college. And then they said, you know, good luck. Like, we're not sending you any more checks and you have to get a job. And I kind of panicked and it was the 80s and everyone was going into <laughs> investment banking. And I did the same. I, I literally didn't know what investment banking was. So um, 
I did like the back back office for swaps trades at Bankers Trust. And then I worked at First Boston and it was fantastic. I made more money than I made for decades after that. Mm-hmm. And it was very exciting. And there's a lot of wonderful and intelligent people in banking. And I just woke up one day and realized it would be my worst nightmare if I woke up and was like a vice president at a bank. It just was not me. And also I had begun to do art more and more on my computer in my little cubicle. And then my boss would come by and I'd like click on Excel and try to look like I was being productive. I think everyone realized that I was not (laughs) that productive. And so I applied and went back to graduate school in painting. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. So speaking of the 80s, uh, we (laughs) we didn't really have the language or the kind of technology for art. Um, that we do now and sort of appreciating digital art, it seems like a given today. So since you went to RISD, like, can you describe what it was like kind of founding a program um, at such a like highbrow institution like that? Graduate school, it was actually the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I thought, again, I thought, oh, like now I'm done with the computer because I'm not in my little cubicle anymore. I'm in a real studio. I make real art, painting, mm-hmm. oil paint. And um, I stretched up some canvas and I did something that I immediately regretted. And in my mind, I thought undo. And of course, nothing happened. And then I realized, like, oh, I really, I still want the computer to be part of my practice. And I looked for a class to take to learn more about it. And there weren't any. And the head of graduate studies said, why don't you teach one? So that was really the beginning of my sort of more systematic research into the field. And when you teach something, you have to really learn it well. If you explaining something to someone else, you know, is an amazing way of learning something. So that started my whole career in, into research and writing about the field as well. It was sort of, a, you know, necessity. I taught at RISD and then I actually taught the same class at Brown. And then I taught a course that was joint between the two schools as well. And this was in the 90s? Yeah, early 90s up to about 95. And then I worked as a researcher, a visual researcher in the computer graphics research group in the computer science department at Brown University. And that was fantastic and actually taught a class in that department as well. So it was great. I had really a very delightful sort of life in academia in the CS department. I worked with one of the co-founders of Brown's CS department, Andries Van Dam. And it was fantastic. I got to think of cool ideas. Mm-hmm. write grants, get them funded, write papers, present them at conferences. And it was a wonderful experience, but I wasn't really making my artwork. You know, it, it was creative in its own way. And um, when my daughter was old enough and she was in school, and I thought, you know, if I don't do my art now, I'm never really going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so in 2008, I decided to take a sabbatical and see what would happen. And then I just never went back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess for an artist, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to focus fully on your practice. It's a luxury and definitely wonderful. Yeah. Gosh, that's such a wonderful story. I love the that trajectory. Yeah, especially in the world of computer art and digital art, it was very fortuitous because it is such a technical you know, realm. So it really helped me just like it helps to know, you know, things about oil painting or printmaking or whatever field you're in. It was incredible to have sort of an apprenticeship basically in the computer science department 
and really learn about all the technical underpinnings of the field. Like what, what is raster graphics? What are vector graphics? Mm-hmm. What's going on, you know, in the 3D world? Yeah. Did you find yourself learning in real time too, since, you know, you're founding this new program that you were also kind of sort of going to school for <laughs> where you, it, it's also the nineties. So I can't imagine that the technology was nearly as advanced as it is today. Not as many computer software or applications. Did you feel like you every day was kind of new? <laughs> yeah. I learned things every day, but I have to say that that's the same today. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, in giving advice to people who are entering the field, you're constantly learning new things. So I don't think you can ever sit back and say, oh, like now I know everything I need to know about digital art because it's not an academic field like, you know, English literature or something where maybe you're studying Shakespeare and you could know everything there's to know about Shakespeare. It changes all the time. Like, it's, yeah, I know people could debate whether that's. Yeah, I was like, there's so but, many Shakespeare scholars. Who it's not. Yeah, opinion. right now who are going to be angry and write in. But it, it, it is different. You know, in the computer science department, faculty would sit in on those classes because they needed to know new things, mm-hmm. you know, that were happening. The languages change and literally the field, you know, moves and new things are discovered. So now, you know, this artificial intelligence is everywhere and affecting everything that people are doing, and machine learning. And that was not a factor when I was doing these things in the 90s. Mm, so on that note, how would you describe the state of digital art today? Digital art today is so exciting. You know, when I was doing it, most of the people around me were, I think of a polite way to say, uninterested. (laughs) Yeah, verging on hostile. Mm. And um, today you cannot ignore the computer. You don't have to use it in your artwork, but it's more like the camera where it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, and many artists use it without referencing it anywhere in the final product, but incorporated into their practice just as a tool to help them visualize and conceptualize what they're doing and get ideas, even though it's not maybe evident in the final, you know, image or painting or whatever the final product is. Mm -hmm. It's part of people's thought process Mm -hmm. and in a way that they don't even find remarkable. Mm -hmm. Whereas 20 years ago, it would have been a point of discussion in their process. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the super exciting time to be an artist and to use digital tools. And I think now working with AI has made it even more exciting to be a digital artist because there's just things out there that are so wacky and extraordinary that it's made it even more fun to be an artist. Yeah, one type of image that you create is AI generated. Can you explain your process? Like, Would you describe yourself as an, an art coder or... Do you consider yourself an artist whose medium is image generators? Like sort of like what's your process and how do you identify in that way? I think the content of my work has been the same since Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad and it's all focused on this, you know, modern landscape, post-Armageddon, kind of weird sci-fi, you know, dramas that are going on and not narratives like a, a clear story, but kind of abstract sci-fi, you know, journey that you're on. And that's the same whether I'm using oil painting or it's a huge installation or it's cutting edge, you know, AI. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that, you know, the process is really driven by the content for me. 
But currently I have been using AI and this, you know, new text to image AI where the first time someone told me that you could type in a phrase and get an image, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of trouble believing that. (laughs) Like I didn't understand how that could work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, and now I do understand how it works, but it still seems very magical to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I spoke one of our guests prior. I spoke with him, and he used his poems as text prompts for the images that were generated. And I love that it's so indicative of the space right now, in particular now that Web three kind of has its own like chamber ecosystem, I guess. This idea of like blurring identities, it's poet who's also an artist who is somewhat of a technologist, you know, kind of encompassing all these different like identities just to create this one work of art is such a like interesting play. I like the way it's very sort of, um, you know, multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those silos aren't that meaningful anyway. So it's nice (laughs) that someone who came from a technology background can become an artist. An artist can become a coder. A musician can become a visual artist. Mm -hmm. You know, that people can explore different things that used to be more separate. Yeah, for sure. So what are the biggest challenges for you that you faced in creating digital art? Well, certainly at the beginning, just enormous sort of reflexive hostility, which I have some empathy for because I remember feeling that way, having such traditional training and background. I remember thinking, what, the computer, you know? (laughs) Um, So I do try to understand that, why people feel that way and, you know, explain what the computer has to offer and make people feel more relaxed about I think the fear that the computer is somehow usurping this creative role Mm. and taking it away from artists. And even now with this amazing capability, I don't think that's what's going on. So I think that's just been an ongoing problem that requires educating the audience of people that are out there. Yeah, it's the fear of losing the artist hand. I think it's been so indoctrinated in us that went to you that it's possible to I guess recreate yeah. that that hand <laughs> digitally too and there are some genuine I think you know fears if I were working as an illustrator and I were seeing some of the things that were coming out I might think wow like these things might be competing with me for a job in the future mm-hmm. because it's so easy now to create these images but I think as more and more communication becomes visual and people I think are going to communicate even more visually, mm-hmm. given how easy it's become. It actually will increase the roles and importance of artists. Mm. For sure. Definitely. Well, on a more positive note. What... That was positive? <laughs> it was positive, for sure. <laughs> I think it's mostly good. I mean, it's The rate of change has been so dramatic, you know, with NFTs and the huge amount of money that flooded into that whole field. I think it's been overwhelming, you know, for the arts, but that it's overall positive. No, for sure. I'm thinking of my own experience. I graduated with an anthropology, archaeology and art history degrees. And I remember sort of it was just ingrained in the art history program, there was this feeling that digital art wasn't legitimate in some way. I mean, this is, I mean, I graduated 2016 undergrad. 
Right. Um, that's really recent. So it's pretty yeah, yeah. So for there still to be this kind of at least I don't know, at least in academia, but just generally I think in the art world, there's still like a little sting there. <laughs> that there's still like a level of education and advocacy that you sort of have to do in order to, you know, for others to take your art seriously or to be able to commercialize it in some way. So yeah, there's no question. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that I'm a collector also. Mm-hmm. And uh, what Michael Spalter and I began collecting digital artwork in 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now have one of the largest private collections of early computer artwork that exists. So we lend pieces to museums all over the world. And when we started, uh, I clearly remember a curator coming to our house and literally laughing at us for collecting these things. And now we're lending dozens of pieces to shows, um, including one that's coming up at LACMA, you know, in major museums, MoMA in New York. And so opinions are changing. Yeah, for sure. So maybe to switch gears, what excites you about digital art right now? Well, the artificial intelligence, definitely just because it's so crazy. And it's so addictive. So I don't know if you've tried any of the text-to-image things, but I think I'm not alone in sometimes being up at two or three in the morning going, I'm just going to do one more. <laughs> see how it comes out. It's like watching a, a Polaroid develop and, mm-hmm. and seeing these images come out. It's so much fun. And just that there's a whole economy now online, thanks to NFTs, mm-hmm. for actually selling and collecting digital work. So, you know, I've been involved in that for a while and there are a few galleries that specialize in it, but it's been extremely niche field. It's very exciting to see that grow and and see, you know, hundreds of people now come in and and become collectors, serious collectors, digital artwork. Oh, for sure. I'm also curious, what's something that's exciting to you that you've been making critical space for too, apart from, you know, a new technology or a technology that you're kind of, I'm really invested in AI. Is there an exhibition or an emerging artist or something like that, that you're just holding critical space for? I've been working on, I don't know if this is uh, exactly what you're getting at, but a different sort of form factor that definitely comes directly out of the whole NFT Mm -hmm. field. So recently, these um, PFP projects have been very popular. Mm-hmm. They don't usually make it over the threshold for me of what I would call fine art. You know, there are all these little characters and things. And then on the other side, there have been these one-of-one, you know, like fine art pieces that people have been selling. So I've been working with an artist named um, Pindar Van Armen mm-hmm. to create what we're calling serials that would be an in-between. So large drops of one-of-ones. Oh, interesting. Which are kind of unique to the NFT ecosystem mm-hmm. because you wouldn't go into a gallery and see, you know, 500 paintings that are kind of all part of a group. I mean, I guess you could, but you don't for whatever reason. Sure. So I think it's literally a new form factor of art that's coming out of the NFT space. And it's a nice merging of a traditional art form, a digital art form, and a crypto art form. Mm-hmm. That I think is going to be very valuable, you know, for artists as a way of selling things that are less expensive than a one of one, opening up their work to new collectors at a lower, you know, cost mm-hmm. basis. 
and also exploring things. And it's particularly nice to do with an AI process because that tends to generate a lot of work that's all different. So it's not like an addition, mm-hmm. you know, when you're making like 300 things that are all the same. Mm-hmm. Right. They're right. all different, but they're all related. So to me, it's actually literally like a new kind of art form factor. Interesting. And this is an exhibition that's forthcoming? This is a thing that we have proposed for Super Rare, for a a new Super Rare space. I don't know if you're familiar with Super Rare spaces. Yeah, yeah. But we've also been doing it. He's been working with a programmer named Justin Highlands, and we've been doing it on our own under the the name Sovereign.art to do drops where the artist owns everything. The artist owns the contract. Mm. Has this type of drop. Right. And that's actually, that's exactly the question that I was asking. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Just to take a slight pivot, you mentioned that you're a collector. And a question that I get pretty often from NFT creators, and even just people who are curious users, who are wondering like who buys NFTs or who even buys, just to take a step back, who buys digital art? Is it storytelling that really pulls you in? Is it the, um, I guess, dexterity with a tool? Like what pulls you in and what gets you to buy? <laughs> well, when we started, Michael Spalter was an art history major and I was working on my book, The Computer and the Visual Arts. And as part of that, I was interviewing the pioneers who had created the first computer artwork. Mm. And this book took me over five years to write. I, I was obsessive about it and it took over my life and everyone around me had to learn about computer art as I was doing this so 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 did he and and he said you know what these people they're like the impressionists they're like every art movement that I've ever studied the academy hates them they can't get their work shown but they're really sophisticated people they you know Mark Wilson studied with Al Held you know that they had studied with major people they knew what they were doing they had created these impressive bodies of work mm-hmm. that were literally just being ignored And he said, we should support them. We should collect this work if we can. And because it was so, they were just like ostracized. The work was more affordable and we were able to start collecting some of it. So that's how we began. And then we just, we loved the way, you know, it worked and thought it was incredible work as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, some people started that way as well. And then others just realized this is incredibly historically important. You know, this is the most important tool of our time. And these are the artists that created work with it. It's definitely important to art history. You know, later on, I think people do appreciate, especially I think younger collectors are able to look at the techniques used as well among the curatorial board of art blocks. So, you know, when projects come through, we look at the aesthetics and we also look at, you know, are they pushing some kind of, you know, technological boundaries as well? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you are a curator. So in a sense, curators are collectors. I always say that that's why I wanted to be, or at least initially earlier in my career, I wanted to be a museum curator because I'm buying art on someone else's budget. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that makes sense that you, you would be looking at it through a curatorial lens for sure. So five years from now, what do you think the future of digital art would look like? That's a great question. It's so hard to know. I mean, I would never have predicted NFTs when I was selling my digital art before NFTs. I always gave people a certificate of authenticity and I never would have predicted that 
having it on the blockchain would be so different psychologically mm. you know, that it would cause like a revolution in art. <laughs> so it's so hard to say, but I think it will, you know, continue to be more and more a part of the art world and more and more a part of artists' practices, you know, and integrated into just how artists work visually. I mean, most artists that I know use Photoshop, for instance, even if it's not like on the little thing next to their work, it doesn't say, you know, Photoshop artist, it might just be a, a oil painting that you're seeing. But often they've used, they've used a camera, they've used Photoshop, they've done different things, they've used a, a video editing program on their phone or something, just as part of the thought process of making the artwork. And I think that will continue that the computers part, you know, just like we use a car to get around because mm-hmm. you can get to more territory and you can use the computer the same way to explore more visual territory. Do you think there will be, and I'm sure this is speculative, but do you think there will be a time where it would be very difficult to create physical artwork without a computer? Is there a world in which <laughs> that would <Yeah>. happen? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, every few years, someone declares a painting is dead and painting sure. has never been stronger. So history I, I has also it. ended too, apparently. So. Right. Yeah. There's still books. Books are great. <laughs> I, have, I have a real book that I've been reading on, on the plane, you know, even though I have a lot of books that I buy digitally, I still like to hold a book sometimes and uh, bookstores are like coming back. I don't know. Amazon opened a bookstore, which is the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> so I don't think traditional art's going to go away at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the minority, but I don't think the metaverse is where it's going to be. I don't think in five years, we're all going to be wandering around with the goggles on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> when I hear from other, you know, cause truthfully we're in a bubble, but you know, when I'm, talking to friends who, you know, accountants or doctors Uh and talking to them about it. That's their vision of what, I guess, this next iteration of the future is going to look like. So that is very interesting that you, you hold to the belief that it's actually not going to be that. I don't know if it's built and I, you know, tend to agree with you. I don't think it's built in the human condition. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, yet to see anything that has made me want to spend much of any time in VR. So maybe in the future, but mm. we're further away from it than everyone lets on. Yeah. And with regard to fully living in a virtual reality, I question it, but I definitely see so much merit in the metaverse and this, you know, living in between two worlds for full context. Sachi, we represent just emerging artists predominantly, and many of them are international, and it's easier for them to sell online. But yeah, yeah that's interesting. And I love art online. Like, I mean, it's great. And that's been one of the fantastic things about NFTs that it's also legitimized selling art online mm-hmm. in a number of different formats. Mm-hmm. You know, now there's platform, you know, so not just NFTs, but just selling art online is suddenly okay whereas before it was not okay oh, yeah. that's a huge difference oh for sure especially you know during the pandemic it was not even just you know galleries and companies like Sachi or first dibs even private mega galleries <laughs> also had 
online viewing rooms and they, you know, bolstered their online sales teams. And so that definitely was a new way of collecting for sure. Um, yeah, which I'm totally on board with. And, you know, in major auction houses had huge sales mm-hmm. online. And I think art's one of the last fields to go online. And it's definitely where things should be. Yeah, it is interesting. I, even as like a digital curator, every now and again, I'm like, I just need to go into a gallery. I have to go into a museum. I want to see paint on a canvas. Yeah, <laughs> I, no, I mean, it's better it. to see it in person, but you can't always oh, go right. in person. And if you don't live in New York or a major city, then, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice to have access to things right? Yeah, that you might not have in the past. And for many artists, being able to sell online is a huge, you know, boon. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, I got an Oculus and I used it for like a few days and then I have hardly ever used it since. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen in five years. I don't think it's going to be this metaverse thing. I really don't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the idea like with the, the meta company, you know, of having a meeting in VR, mm-hmm. I just think is a horrible, horrible idea. <laughs> I, I don't even understand how that got funded. And like, <laughs> it's just oh. such a bad idea. So I don't think that's going to happen. Gosh, yeah. So this is a question that I've just generally wanted to ask you, because of course, yeah, kind of articles that you've written and, you know, articles that other people have written about you or your exhibitions. So your name does come up pretty often in conversations about women pioneering in the digital art space. Do you see yourself as a woman artist critiquing the space or, and I guess for our women artists who are listening to the podcast, what did you do to stay encouraged when you were aware that you were in possibly a more male dominated space, whether that's in tech, art tech, or digital art? You know, sexism is definitely a thing. Mm -hmm. I think if you, you know, sit around dwelling on it, it gets depressing. So even though I acknowledge it, and definitely if I'm in a situation to help, you know, work against it, I definitely do. I don't dwell on it because, I don't know, it doesn't lead to anything positive. So I certainly try to, you know, help and encourage other female, the female identifying artists. I love groups like the Verse Verse, mm-hmm. which is an amazing group of female uh, poets who have NFT poems mm-hmm. and have really brought poetry to the, the metaverse, the NFT world, and are doing incredible things. I guess my theory is just like creating great work and putting it out there is the best thing that I can do. For sure. I love that. Yeah, I really do love that. I, I think it kind of even speaks to this current space where no one's really fully a, like attaching to, you know, being a woman artist or being a identity focused artist necessarily. I think that actually is pretty, that's something that's relatively unique about Web3 that there's, you can sort of be whoever you want. You can have an altered self. I would say, you know, if someone did the experiment and was more anonymous, that, you know, they would do better not revealing that they were a woman. I just participated in this project that Operator ran where you you sell your signature. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a conceptual art project because if you sign your work as a woman, it's immediately valued less mm. than if, you know, there's a male name on it. Mm-hmm. So I think being involved with things like that, that call attention to the fact, because sometimes, you know, even as a woman, maybe you're 
valuing works by women less because mm-hmm. it's just a, a subconscious thing. So making people aware that those prejudices are out there, I think is valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a collecting opportunity. So, you know, collectors out there, if you're listening, because it's not a real underlying thing that exists, like work by women are great and sometimes they're better. So it's good to collect work by women because ultimately it's going to be worth a lot more than it, you know, it's selling for now. Mm-hmm, for sure. So this is last question. <laughs> yeah. So what are some pieces of advice you have for artists who are just getting started with digital art? If your digital art is something that you do want to sell as an NFT, then it's very important to be on Twitter. So the traditional art world or the digital art world that you might want to sell to more traditional collectors, they're all on Instagram. But the NFT world is all on Twitter. So if you're not on Twitter, you have to, you know, get on Twitter and then just anything that you might post on Instagram, also post it on Twitter and start building up a community there as well. It's mm-hmm. kind of strange. And often those worlds don't overlap at all. So a lot of the NFT and crypto people are on Twitter and are just literally not even on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of completely separate social media worlds. Mm-hmm. So depending where you're looking for your community and collectors, you may have to be on one or the other or both mm-hmm. of those social media platforms. So I would say that's that's important depending on where you know you're looking and whether you want to be in the NFT world or not. And then otherwise, I don't think being a digital artist is that different from being any other kind of artist. You know, in terms of exploring whatever your content themes are. Mm-hmm mastering whatever your your medium is mm-hmm. so just like if you're an oil painter you're going to learn about you know linseed oil and you know or how to make your acrylic paint not dry too fast or whatever sure. you know you're going to learn <laughs> about your medium if you are you know making videos you should learn about whatever you're using after effects or premiere you know understand how video works on the computer so that you can make it well Mm-hmm. And there's so much information online. There's so many YouTube tutorials. So much. <laughs> you can do classes that you pay money for, but you can also just get tons of information for free mm-hmm. to get better at what you do so that you can, you know, get the most out of these amazing tools that are out there. And also just, I think, join up with communities, whether they're on social media or different like critique groups or things. And there, you know, I think just a lot of opportunities for that online. Because things do change all the time, and it's great to have feedback and and have information about what's going on and what opportunities there are. People tend to think of artists kind of working in isolation, and you know it's like they're genius artists working alone in their studio. But it's really a very social thing where it's hard to get ahead and get better without connecting with other people. Definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm also thankful that you make a distinction between NFT art or fine art and digital art or digital fine art. I think there's this conception that they're separate or all of digital art is NFTs and that's actually a very important distinction to make. But great. Uh so that's really all the time we have to cover today, but before we wrap up, if people want to follow you, where should they go? I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's just Ann Spalter, all one word, all lowercase on both of them. And I'm very accessible. You can direct message me. And I'm online all the time because I work, work on my computer all the time. So 
Great. Thank you so much again. And let's please keep in touch. I would love that. Thanks for listening to the Future of Digital Art podcast brought to you by Saatchi Art. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. If you'd like to find out more about Saatchi Art's first ever art NFT collection, The Other Avatars, or to engage with Saatchi Art as an artist, please visit www.saatchiart.com forward slash NFT. Thanks, and I'll catch you again on the next episode.